Is Jesus really the only way to God? How can a loving God save some and not others? What would Jesus say to my LGBTI friends? Can I trust the Bible? How can a good God allow suffering? How can I find God's will for my life? Can I lose my faith and what can I do to grow it? If God is sovereign, do we actually have free will? How would a Christian approach sex and dating? Can women lead in the church? You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. Welcome everyone, good morning and welcome to Caroline Springs Anglican. I'm excited, if I haven't met you before, my name is Jimmy, I'm a pastor here at Caroline Springs Anglican and uh, we've got a big, juicy, meaty topic to discuss today. If God is sovereign, do we have free will? The reality is, is that at the heart of the Christian faith, there are unexplainable mysteries, things that are difficult to grapple with that in our head seem... Uh, just unexplainable, and uh, they're at the very heart of what we believe. Consider for a moment something that every Christian Orthodox person has ever believed, that the Trinity is a real thing, right? The Trinity is hard for us to understand and grapple with. We believe that God is three and one. We believe in God the Father, who is not God the Son, who is not God the Spirit, who is not God the Father. And yet we don't believe in three separate gods, but one God. Right? That's been the historic position throughout the last 2,000 years, that Christians believe in one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, uh, St. Augustine once said that if you don't believe in the Trinity... Uh, your salvation's at risk, and if you think too much on it, your sanity's at risk. All right? And that's true of many of the great questions of the Christian faith, including this one. Because it seems to me that there are two truths which are taught in the Scriptures which are hard for us to grapple with. One is that God is completely, utterly, totally sovereign over all things in his creation. As God stretches out his hand, there is nothing which he does not say mine over. And we also have to balance that with the fact that throughout the scriptures, we see people making real choices with real consequences. These are not involuntary choices, they're voluntary choices, ones that we really make with real consequences. Now, how does that work out? Because if God is really that sovereign, if he is completely, utterly, totally sovereign, do we actually have real choice? And if we have real choice, does God, is God really sovereign? Does he really have his hand over all things? This is a tricky question, and I'm glad that we're going to be searching into it today. Now, I have a couple of things to say before we begin. One is that at this church, we put a high value on the Word of God, and both Pastor Jonathan and myself work diligently and hard as we can to make it clear. We want to make it accessible to everyone. Now, sometimes when we preach, the sermons are going to be like milk. They're going to be easy to digest, Right? This is probably not going to be one of those. <laughs> Just letting you know, right? This is like the pizza sermon, you know, like the complex carbohydrates that sort of sit in your stomach for a couple of days and you feel it, right? You need some digestion, right? This, this is the kind of sermon. But I want you, I, I want to encourage you as much as possible, stay with us as long as you can because the payoff 
is incredible. It will have an enormous influence on what you believe about the gospel, an enormous influence on what you believe about missions, an enormous influence on what you believe about your assurance before God, about your anxiety in life, and what, what, what kind of Christian life you lead. It has enormous implications. That's why we want to digest well. Okay, So stay with me. I'm going to be praying for you in a moment for that very reason. The second thing I want to say is that throughout history, there have been numerous God-glorifying, Jesus-exalting Christians who have faithfully preached the word, who have disagreed with the positions that we're going to take. Right? This is an open-handed issue, something that Christians have disagreed about, and that's, that's okay. Right? You might very well want to disagree with the position I take. That's okay. But I have come to a convictional opinion, conclusion, place on this. That just means that I've searched the Scriptures as far as possible, that I have prayed as much as I can, that I've talked with as many people as I can, and come to a settled position. Now, there can be one of two things that happen because of that. One is that I uh, preach an incredibly biased sermon and disregard everyone else. and We don't want to do that. The other is that we present all cases as strongly as possible and then let the one that is strongest rise to the top. We don't want to be the kind of people who say, well, I'm a Calvinist or an Arminian or a Molinist or uh, a Pelagian or, or some other crazy view, right? We want to say, I'm a Christian who loves Jesus and submits to the Scriptures. Let us search them and follow Christ. Okay, so with that in mind, let me pray for us and then we'll begin the digestion. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are who you are. You are the great I am. We thank you that your word is dependable and true. We thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you do love us and that you are good. And I pray this morning as we examine the scriptures and that even though this is a difficult topic, that you would illuminate our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the things of God, that you would make it very clear for us, that you would give us great energy, great stamina to be able to digest the hard things so that we are encouraged and fueled for our Christian walk. We pray that today, as always, we would glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So we said that there are two incontrovertible truths. One is that God is completely, utterly, totally sovereign over all things in his creation. And uh, well, here's the paradox, right? This is the paradox. So the, the first thing is that God is completely and utterly sovereign. And we can see this throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. For instance, Ephesians 1 says this, In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. What things are worked out according to the purpose of God's will? All things. There is nothing that is worked outside of God's will. Now, obviously, this is the really big level. What about the small level? Well, it says in Proverbs 16 that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, we don't, we don't cast lots anymore, right? But it's like dice, right? If you've ever played like, uh, what's a, the only dice game I can think of is like Yahtzee, right? right? If you can think of dice games, right? Every single dice that has ever been rolled has its decision from the Lord. Okay, and then we read in uh, Psalms that the Lord does whatever he pleases. 
in the heavens and on the earth and the seas and all their depths. There is nothing constraining God whatsoever. He is sovereign over all things. And we read in the book of Isaiah that God says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. God is completely, utterly, totally sovereign over all things. He is in control. This has led John Piper to come up with this statement, which summarizes a lot of God's sovereignty. God works all things after the counsel of his will. This all things includes the fall of sparrows in Matthew 10, the rolling of dice in Proverbs 16, the slaughter of his people in Psalm 44, the decisions of kings in Proverbs 21, the failing of sight in Exodus 4, the sickness of children in 2 Samuel, the loss and gain of money in 1 Samuel, the suffering of the saints in 1 Peter 4.19, the completion of travel plans in James, the persecution of Christians in Hebrews, the repentance of souls in 2 Timothy, the gift of faith in Philippians, the pursuit of holiness in Philippians 3, the growth of believers in Hebrews, the giving of life and the taking in death, 1 Samuel, and the crucifixion of his son in Acts 4. There could not be a more clear statement that shows God's utter sovereignty over all things. And yet we also have to grapple with the balance that human beings make real decisions with real consequences. And we see this again and again, especially in the New Testament when it comes to the issue of how are we saved. So like uh, in Romans 10, Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who's going to be saved? Those who call on the name of the Lord. You make real choices with real consequences. Next, we have it from Matthew. By your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. The choices you make have eternal lasting consequences. And again from the book of John, I told you that you would die in your sins if you did not believe that I am here. You will indeed die in your sins. Human beings will make real choices with real consequences, either to eternal life or to separation from God. So how do we grapple with these two truths? It seems that we run into this wherever we go to in the Scriptures. We, run, we cannot escape from the fact that God is sovereign over all things, and we cannot escape from the fact that our decisions matter. Seemingly a paradox. Right? Unexplainable, inextricable mystery. Any attempt to deny one of those has been, over the last 1,500 years especially, has been deemed as heresy by every single council that has ever. So if you want to take, get, get rid of God's sovereignty, heresy. If you want to get rid of man's choice, heresy. Right? And so we've got to plough the middle line and work out how we balance these two tensions. And the reality is for us that this is actually a very real thing. We, we already believe this. Now, for instance, let me, let me just show you how this works throughout the whole of the Christian experience. Now, who wrote the book of Romans? 
This is a really easy one, hopefully. Paul, right? So Paul wrote the book of Romans. So he wrote all of the words. Did God have any say in the words that he wrote? Are they just his words that he came up with? Okay, they're being inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? So Paul wrote all of the book of Romans, and they are all his words, and yet they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? So on one hand, you have Paul writing every word, and on the other hand, you have God inspiring. Now, who lives, the, who lives your Christian life? You do, right? Well, I, I hope no one else is living a Christian life for you, that, like by proxy. Uh, I, it was hard this week. I got, you know, Sarah to do it for me. <laughs> right? It doesn't work like that. But how do you do it? You do it through the Holy Spirit who empowers you to do all things, right? Can you live the Christian life without God? No. So on the one hand, you have you living the Christian life, and on the other hand, you have God empowering you, encouraging you, strengthening you to do all things. Why are you saved? Well, on the one hand, you're saved because the like God and the Holy Spirit regenerated your heart and gave you a heart of flesh where your heart of stone used to be. And on the other hand, you are a Christian because you repented and believed in the gospel. Right? Sovereignty and choice in both hands. How do we reconcile these two truths? Well, the, the interesting thing is that not only does it play out in our Christian life, but it's been playing out in all of church history anyway, and for that matter, in the Scriptures. So, for instance, we read in Philippians. This is a statement that Paul makes. My dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, so Paul is saying on record, guys, you need to work hard at your salvation. You need to work out what's going on in you. You need to work out what you believe. And then what is he going to say? For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Sovereignty and choice. Work hard for it is God who works in you. Okay. And then we we go on to the next bit, which is uh, John chapter 11. Now, What's going on is that Jesus is doing some crazy miracles, right? He's not being a friend of the Pharisees. They're getting upset. They're saying all these crazy things. And we meet this guy called Caiaphas. And, uh, and Ca- so this is introducing Caiaphas. So the Pharisees are saying, if we let him, being Jesus, go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Excuse me. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Can we just go back one slide, Jeremy? Uh, Phil? Right? Now, whose words were they? They were Caiaphas' words. Caiaphas spoke the words. Caiaphas believed the words. Caiaphas wanted to kill Jesus. And we find that that out, right? Caiaphas spoke the words, but it also says he did not say this on his own. Well, who wanted to prophesy about the Jesus who would come as the sacrifice for everyone? Well, God did. 
So Caiaphas spoke the words prophesying that Jesus would die and they would get rid of him. And God also spoke the words through Caiaphas that Jesus would die and then he would be resurrected and he would reign in glory. Sovereignty and free will. Well, not free will, choice. We'll get to that in a second. And next we have it in Acts chapter 4. <clears throat> on, their, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God, saying, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. This is the important bit. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. To the very worst event in human history. The crowd is yelling, crucify him. Pilate is yelling, crucify him. Herod is saying, crucify him. The Pharisees saying, crucify him. That is their voice. And yet God had, by his power and will, decided beforehand that Pilate and Herod and the Pharisees and the crowd would yell, crucify him on the cross. Now, Pharisees, Herod, Pilate, the crowd, all made decisions and choices, but God had willed it. How do we work this out? This is the, this is the tension. I, me, I, me, I should have mentioned before that if you do have questions, this is a meaty topic and I'm racing through a lot of scripture pretty quickly, please send them in to the, the text. Um, we want to be able to answer your questions and um, we hope that we can be helpful as well, right? Now, someone might pop up at this point and say, well, you haven't really mentioned free will. You've sort of mentioned that we have choices, but you haven't used the term free will. And that's in the sermon question. So you should probably talk about that, right? Uh, and that's, that's for a, a, a very good reason. One is that free will has been controversial in Christian circles for a long time as to whether we have it. And more to the point, it's been difficult to determine what we're talking about when we talk about free will. See, if you talk to one person, they'll have one definition, and if you talk to another person, they'll have another. And you might agree with the one person, but disagree with the other, and so what are you talking about when we talk about free will? Well, there are, I think there are three major definitions that, that come into play, okay? and this will, this, will, this will work itself out. So one is that our will is free when we make real choices with real consequences. Now, every single Christian must agree with that, Right? That we have a free, if we have free will, uh, that means that we make real choices with real consequences. Okay. And then we have uh, perhaps a more biblical version of free will, which is that our will is free when it is not in bondage to inferior affections. That is, that when we have the ability to choose that which is greater, our will is not 
our will is free. When we have the ability to, as C.S. Lewis, Lewis, Lewis said, reject the mud piles and the slums for the day at the beach. That's when our will is free. Now, we might go, yeah, okay, but I think the only person that is true of is the Christian because the Scriptures talk about us being in bondage to sin. So the second one can't be true of all people. And the real trouble comes with the third definition, which is what most people are talking about when they talk about free will, which is our will is free when it is decisively self-determining. And that's precise language for a reason. What I mean by decisively self-determining is that in the end, the person who has the ultimate say over any situation is yourself. Right? And the problem with that is that the only person who has had the final definitive last word on every single topic is God. Right? We do not have definitive self-determination. We've never had definitive self-determination. The last word is always God's. And so that's why it's really tricky when we, we talk about free will because which one are we talking about? Well, I might, I'm, I'm on board with the first one and I can, I can work with the second, but if we're talking about the third, then it's not just unbiblical, it's idolatry. Now, we pick up the language of free will a lot because it gets God off the hook. Why is there suffering free will? Why, why do I experience these things? Free will. Why did this happen this way? Free will, right? God doesn't want to be put off the hook. He wants you to put him on the hook. Right? Let the scriptures say what they're going to say. Now, one of the ways that this has been fleshed out over the last 2,000 years, specifically this kind of idea, when we're talking about uh, sovereignty and free will and election and these kind of things, it's been fleshed out in history. Big debates that have happened throughout all of human history. And uh, so we're going to look at that. But I also know that uh, I'm, I'm struggling to keep your attention as it is. Uh, this is a meaty topic. And I know that as soon as I start talking about church history, which makes me like stay up at night till three in the morning because I'm like, oh my goodness. Right? That's not the case for everyone. So I've, uh, I've invented something called church history through the memes. Now, a meme is sort of a funny image that's shared on Facebook and that kind of thing. And we're going to do church history through the memes. And I'm going to show to sort of try and uh, help, help us gra- grapple with the big history of how this has been worked out, whilst also not losing anyone in the 12th century, because those guys are wickety-whack, right? So, here we go. <laughs> okay, next, first one. Ne- next one, sorry. So... The very first thing that has happened in church history as we try and work out this is that there was a British monk called Pelagius. About 320, 340 he was born. We don't know heaps about him, but what we know is that he was a teacher and that he went to Rome and discovered there complete uh, immorality. Just incredible, incredible corruption. And uh, because of what he saw there, Pelagius said, guys, come on, you need to be moral. You need to be moral people. And the way that uh, Pelagius tried to demonstrate this was he said that sin, sin doesn't have an effect on us. 
We have the ability to choose evil or choose God. We should reject evil and pursue God. That we have nothing that our, our nature or our will or our bodies are enslaved to. And so this was a pretty popular thought. It was spread by Pelagius and his assistant, Salacious. Uh, I wish I had a rhyming assistant as well. Albert, you can change your name. <laughs> right? And uh, Augustine at the time, he came along and said, Pelagius, what are you talking about? Have you read the scriptures? The scriptures clearly say that our will and our minds and our bodies are in bondage to sin. And so we have this. Uh, the Batman meme. Right? So Augustine and Pelagius at the Council of Carthage in 412 had a big Barney. It was actually Augustine and Salacious, his assistant. And Pelagianism, the idea that there is nothing encumbering us, nothing blocking us from God, was deemed as heresy. So Augustine won, Pelagius lost. It's been, the, been a really important thing. So the idea that there is nothing blocking us from God, that Jesus came as a good idea, a good person to follow, but not necessarily as the sacrifice by which we are reconciled to God, that's Pelagian. Okay? And you sort of thought, okay, well, Augustine's laid down the law. This is where we get original sin from. Augustine came up with that idea. Augustine's laid down the law, he's put down original sin, there's stuff blocking us from God, we need God's grace, they come because we can't choose God, we're blind and deaf and we can't choose God, so we, we need someone. And then about 100 years later, these guys came along called the Semi-Pelagians, and we've got an Eminem meme, <laughs> right? Now the Semi-Pelagians said, okay, we're going to try and marry Pelagians' ideas with Augustine's ideas. We're going to say, well, okay, God's grace definitely has something to do. He has something to do with it. God has something to do with it. But what we're going to say is that humans have free will to choose God, and thereafter, God does the work with us. So the living of the Christian life, like we all said before, we live the Christian life and the Holy Spirit encourages, right? They get that bit right. But they sort of say, well... You know, before then, it's just a free rain, free slather. It's like a picnic. Choose whatever you want. Now, at the Council of Orange in uh, 500 and something, um, also deemed as heresy. Ironically, semi-Pelagian views are probably the most common ones amongst people who haven't thought deeply about the topic, right? There is nothing stopping me from choosing God or from choosing something else, right? But after then, God will help me. Okay, so then we get to our good friend John Calvin. Now, there'd been, there's about a thousand years' history in between here, right? But after Augustine had sort of laid down the law, Pelagian and his followers have sort of been going, no, nah, you guys are wrong, you got it all messed up. The church has been fairly settled on this for a while. And there's some new ideas being brought in. Martin Luther and Erasmus had a big uh, argument about free will. And John Calvin came along and probably uh, for the first time really articulately laid out what it looks like to be saved by God. Well, well 
really articulate, especially in this, this regard, in terms of God's sovereignty. So Calvin had a huge view of God's sovereignty in salvation. And the big ideas that came out of it were these two ideas. One is that we are unconditionally elected by God and that grace is effective. Grace is effectual. So there is a blocker between us and God, namely our sin, that has caused us to be dead and blind and deaf to the things of God. No one seeks for God. No one desires Him. We are slaves to sin. So there is no ability that we have that will cause us to choose God. That ability is dead and gone and buried with our sin. So how does God bring dead people to life? Well, Calvin's big idea was that God unconditionally elects people, that is, that he chooses people that he wishes to display his glory and majesty in by raising them to new life. And the way that he does this is he elects them, so he chooses them. And for that person, grace will be effective. That is, you might have heard the term irresistible grace before. Effectual grace is probably a more accurate description, right? Grace is effective to that person. The person will hear the gospel. They'll hear the good news. They'll hear about Jesus and go, yes, that makes so much sense. Right? God has opened their ears to hear. He's opened their eyes to see. And he's opened their hearts to receive. Now about 50, 60 years later, after Calvin's death, there was a guy called Jacob Arminius. Now, he was a student under Calvin's successor, right? See, Sarah's laughing because I made her look at the memes beforehand, and she asked me, what does that mean? Jacob Arminius, was a, he, was, uh, he learnt under Calvin's successor, Theodore Beza, and he goes, oh, Calvin, oh, I don't know, don't know, mate. Uh, we're probably going to have to disagree on this one. Ah. Uh, and so we're going to come up with a new system. That was Jacob Arminius's thoughts. And so his big addition to the discussion was this idea of foreknowledge. So the idea that God knew before the history, that he looked out down the timeline of history, who would respond to him, and that's who he elected. So he elected people because he knew that they would respond to him. Right? From the past into the future. And uh, they come up with a whole system. The Dutch remonstrants were a part of this. And they, they, it was really popular. In fact, it was so popular that a guy many of us would have heard of, John Wesley, he loved Arminius. Right? So him and his brother, John and Charles Wesley, they wrote many famous Christian hymns. They actually had a magazine called The Arminian. If you, oh, by the way, if you're trying to work out where does Calvinism and Arminianism come from? John Calvin, Jacob Arminius. Two different views. Okay? And so John Wesley, he, he came up with uh, The Arminian. He was a faithful gospel preacher. He was a great man of God. I respect Wesley a lot. And his big addition was this idea of provenient grace. Grace that goes before us. Okay? So 
Wesley, along with Calvin and along with Arminius, said, okay, there is something separating us from God. We are dead, we are blind, we are deaf, we will not choose him. And whereas Calvin said people are unconditionally elected, um, uh, Wesley said God's grace goes before them and neutralizes the effects. So it restores people back to the original state in the garden where they had the ability to choose good or evil. So the effects of the fall of mankind, the effects of sin, are neutralized. Okay. Now, Augustine, Calvin, Arminius, Wesley, all orthodox positions. That is, you can follow the way thoughts of Calvin or Augustine or Wesley or Arminius and be a Christian who loves Jesus, who glorifies him. And you'll find many of these churches in different, uh, many of these thoughts in different churches. For instance, the Pentecostal church really loves the ideas of John Wesley. Um, Reformed churches obviously follow John Calvin. There's sort of like this back and forth, and you'll find them cropping up everywhere. Now, do you remember when at the start I said that you have to hold the idea that God is sovereign and also the idea that people have real choices in tension, right? That if you remove one, you end up in heresy. Well, let me introduce you to two heresies. Okay, the first one is something called open theism. Now, for open theists, they say our free will is so strong, so big, that God actually doesn't know the future. Right? God isn't sovereign. He doesn't know the future. He's like, what are these guys doing? I'm going to respond to them. Okay, so Johnny made that decision. Well, if I do this, then maybe he'll become a Christian. Right? See the idea of open theism. So God is surprised by us. He's perplexed by us. They remove God's sovereignty and play up our free will, as it were. In this uh, our free will is decisively self-determining. God has limited himself so that our free will could be buffered up. Now, this is heresy because it denies who God is. Right? God is omniscient, omnipotent. Right? He's all-powerful and all-knowing. There is nothing that our God does not know. You have to deny clear scriptural teaching to hold to this. Okay. And then we have the other end. So if that is the one that gets rid of God's sovereignty, there's one that gets rid of man's free choice at all, and that's called hyper-Calvinism or hard determinism. So the idea in this is that God is so sovereign that there is no choice whatsoever. You have no choice. God elects you and you will be saved. You're basically already saved. And because of this, someone who might hold to this would say, okay, we don't need to preach the gospel. We don't need to pray at all because God's already determined it. Right? And you end up disobedient. Right? If you are not praying for your friends, if you're not proclaiming the gospel, right, you are being disobedient. Right? Stop being silly. Right? So... I hope I haven't like, overwhelmed you guys with so much information, but we'll, we'll keep going. I t- just trust me, the payoff will be a mess. So I want to interact with the three main ideas that come forward. 
unconditional election, divine foreknowledge, and provenient grace. So do we find these in the Scriptures? Because ultimately, we don't want to follow the ways of Calvin or Arminius or Wesley. We want to follow the ways of Christ, and we do that by submitting to his Scriptures. So do we find these? So let's, let's look at foreknowledge first. So, divine foreknowledge is rooted in uh, Romans 8. This is, this is the main place where we find it. So this is, this is one way of looking at it. So, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters, and those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he will glorify, he also glorified. And so they say, okay, so God from eternity past looked into the future, foreknew who would be the ones who would receive him, and they are the ones that he elected, These are, they are the ones he predestined and justified and called and glorified. And the problem is that I think they missed the point. Because who's the one who foreknew? God is. Who's the one who predestined? God is. Who's the one who called? God is. Who's the one who justified? God is. And who's the one who glorifies? God is. There's not much about our choice there. And I think it actually does a disservice to the whole of the scriptural text because I think if eternity passed, God looks into the future, he will not find people who will receive him. Why? Because the scriptural evidence doesn't say that. It says that we're in bondage to sin. We're enslaved to sin. We do not desire God. Right? Book of John says this. Uh, they answered him, being the Pharisees, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we will be set free? And Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And we see in the book of Romans chapter 3, There is no one righteous, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. If God from eternity past is looking through the timeline of history to find a people who will respond to him, he will not find anyone who says, let me worship Jesus. He will find his entire creation preferring to sleep with the pigs, to dine with the swine rather than to dine with the king. Right? If we're depending on God foreknowing who will respond to him, the reality is that no one will respond. No one desires God outside of God's intervention. It causes Charles Spurgeon to say this. What did he foresee about my faith? Did he foresee that I should get that faith myself and that I should believe on him of myself? No! Christ could not foresee that because no Christian man or woman will ever say that faith came of itself without the gift and without the working of the Holy Spirit. I have met with a great many believers and talked with them about this matter, but I never knew one who could put his hand on his heart and say, I believed in Jesus without the assistance of the Holy Spirit. So, 
divine foreknowledge falls. I don't think it's sustainable. But what's often happened is that we've, that what, what's happened is that they've married the ideas. So God foreknew, but he also knew about prevenient grace, the grace that comes before us. Right? So grace neutralizes the effects of the fall. It enables people to respond to God. It enables people who can worship him. It removes our deafness and blindness and death before him. And I've got to be honest with you, I love John Wesley. If I wasn't an Anglican, if I wasn't part of this church, I'd probably be a Wesleyan, right? I really like John Wesley. But I just don't find this idea anywhere in the Scriptures. At all, anywhere. Like, anywhere. The two places that, that are sort of said, okay, this is, this is what, it, what it looks like. So there's one in... Um, Get it on the screen. That'll help my memory. <laughs> in Titus. For the grace of God that has appeared to offer salvation to all people. And the other one is in John chapter 12. Now this is the time for judgment on this world. The prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. So uh, Wesleyans would say, okay, so Jesus has died... And because of his death, he's drawn all people to himself. And the drawing of all people to himself, that's the idea of prevenient grace. I just, I just don't see it, to be honest with you. Like, I think there's so many texts that talk about how God works in salvation. There's so much scripture that talks about um, grace. And yet, at best... These are vague aspersions at best. For one, often when he's talking about all people, he's not talking about all people in the sense of everyone who has ever existed, right? Otherwise, you could make this claim universalism, right? God's going to draw all people to himself. Everyone will be saved in the end. And we want to say as Christians, no, you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, right? Verse 11, uh, chapter 11, all people he's talking about is the children of God. Earlier, he's talking about Israel. Like, it could refer to many things. I just don't think it refers to prevenient grace at all. Um, I, I just don't find it anywhere. I'd, to be honest with you, I'd love to find prevenient grace. I'd love to believe in this wholeheartedly because it actually removes a lot of tension as a believer to be able to say it's free will. Uh, it's, it's, that's so much easier I just don't think it's biblical. And I'd love to be proven wrong, by the way. But the problem is, you actually see in the Scriptures, say in Mark 4, that Jesus doesn't want some people to be saved. This is, this is hard, right? We're like, oh, no. Mark 4, when he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. So that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Half, right? Prevenient grace hasn't appeared. There are some people that God does not want saved, according to this text. 
What about unconditional election? Now, I find this to be a much stronger and much more comprehensive position. Here's why. When you look at the Scriptures, this is the idea that pops forth, that God has unconditionally chosen a people for himself outside of our desires, outside of our affections, right? outside of our wanting him because no one wants him. If you get this picture in John chapter 6, this is the words of Jesus. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. But all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of those that he has given me, but shall raise them up on the last day. My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up. At this the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, his father and mother? We know. How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I'll raise them up at the last day. Outside of the intervening work of God, there will be no one in the kingdom of God. Unless the Father draws them, unless the Father saves them, no one will be in the kingdom of God. And then we read in John chapter 10, The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense, Jesus? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify, but you did not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me. It's greater than all. No one can snatch them out of his hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus is saying, the Father has given me sheep. The sheep are the ones who know my voice. And every single one of them will not be able to be snatched out of his hands. So the whole idea that you can become a Christian and then later not be a Christian, right? it contrasts with this. Because you have to say, no one can be snatched out of the hands of God. No one. Who are those who respond to the gospel? Who are those who respond to grace? Who are those who truly worship Jesus in spirit and in truth? The ones who God has given to Jesus as his sheep. In Acts chapter 13, it says this, When the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of God and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. All who were appointed. Who were the ones 
who believe, the sheep that God has given Jesus and those who are appointed to eternal life. Now, what are the implications of this, if this is true? I think election has enormous implications for the rest of our Christian walks. In fact, I would say that the reason so many of us are lacking in faith and trust in God is that we do not depend upon the sovereignty of God. The implications are enormous. Consider the implications for gospel ministry. Knowing that when you walk in and declare the gospel, that there are sheep that Jesus has, that there are those who are appointed. What kind of boldness would we have if we believe that in every crowd there were people who will respond to the gospel because God has chosen them? But that gives us enormous courage and confidence, right? Because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on Him. Right? It depends on the gospel, which is good news to the perishing, and the elect will respond. Consider the implication for missions. Some of the greatest missionaries that have ever lived have been people who have a high view of God's sovereignty in salvation. Right? These were men and women who would travel the other side of the world with death laughing in their face and experience turmoil and trouble every single day because they believed that God is sovereign and until his will had been accomplished, there was nothing that could happen to them. Right? That's the kind of confidence we need. Consider the words of uh, John Patton. There's two uh, long quotes I'm going to read because I think this is the kind of view that I want our church to have. My enemies seldom slacken their hateful designs against my life, however calmed or baffled for the moment. A wild chief followed me around for four hours with his loaded musket, and though often directed towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he had not been there, fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished." Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands and felt immortal till my work was done. Trials and hairbreadth escapes strengthened my faith and seemed only to nerve me for more to follow. And they did tread swiftly upon each other's heels. Before this, John Patton's wife has died. Two weeks upon landing on the mission. She died in childbirth. And a week after that, his first child died. I feel immortal until God's work is finished. Consider the next quote. Now, this happened as John Patton was about to leave the island. He had his uh, faithful uh, fellow Christian, Abraham, there, who was a native Christian. Um, he'd been converted. And as they were leaving, there were two tribes who were fighting over how they would kill them. One had spears, the other had clubs. And this is what Patton says in the aftermath. My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. 
My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevailed to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ who is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. Friend, that's the kind of confidence that we want to have in our God. And the reason that we don't do gospel ministry is because we don't have that kind of confidence. We do not have the kind of confidence that says, come spears or arrows, stones or bows, come musket fire, the will of God will prevail and nothing can stand against it. Now notice, John Patton went. He was faithful. He was courageous. He made a choice to go, but trusted in the sovereignty of God to protect him. This has enormous implications for us as Christians. Consider the implications for prayer. If we dwell on the words of Jesus in John 15, which says that without me you can do nothing. There's a quote that you can read up in the office. Right, that I wrote down to remind myself of this. And it's a quote by John Piper. And it says, Salvation is a gift from God. Endurance is a gift from God. Faith is a gift from God. Joy is a gift from God. We labor for things that we cannot provide. So loudly comes the noise that says, you must attend the meeting, you must write down the sermon, that you must do all these things, but quietly the bell will toll, without me you can do nothing. Consider implications for our humility. Now many people who have a high view of sovereignty have been accused of uh, being arrogant jerks. Right? We call them cage-stage Calvinists, right? because they need to be locked in a cage. And the reality is that they're only that way because they have not dwelt deeply enough on the sovereignty of God and salvation. If you truly believe that there is nothing that could have saved you outside of Jesus Christ, that you were dead in your sins, that you are dead in your transgressions, that you are destined for eternal separation from the Father, that you are dead, blind, and deaf, and that the only thing that saved you was Jesus Christ. You know how humble that should make you? There is nothing to be proud about. We have dined with the swine. We have raised up our hands and yelled, crucify him. Yet God, knowing that none would turn to him, outside of this, has saved us. Like, that kills pride in you. If you do not dwell on this, then I do not I don't know what will make you humble. Consider the implications for our anxiety. Now, I know for a fact that I can be an anxious person sometimes, as can Sarah and many people. Right? Anxiety might be something that affects you. I know that a recent stat came out that Teenagers have the same amount of anxiety as a mental health patient in the 1960s. Similar, right? We live in an anxious world. But I know that my anxiety is stilled 
when I consider that the God who has created all things for his glory, who holds all things in place from eternity past to eternity future, has promised that he will finish the work he has started in me. There is nothing that will prevail against the word of God, nothing that will prevail against his will. Do you know what kind of like, peace that brings? Knowing that we can rest in the goodness of God. And finally, think about the implications for assurance. Now, I know for a fact that some of us think, I don't know whether I am a Christian or not. I don't know whether I'm a Christian or not. That's a big question because at times I've had doubts, as I'm sure many of you have had. Am I a Christian anymore? And the scriptures tell us to cling on to God with all that we have, like a hermit crab. Right? We're just clinging on. But the more that we dwell upon the goodness of God's sovereignty, we can see that his hand is all the more stronger than ours. We cling on, but even when my strength will fail, none will be lost out of the Father's grasp. Right? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Now, I'm not saying that once saved, always saved. You might have heard that before. It's just an idiotic statement, right? Because the scriptures clearly talk about those who are saved are the ones who persevere, the ones who endure, the ones who run the race, who finish the fight, right? It's more like if saved, always saved. Like If God has caused you to go from death to life, if he has given you a new heart to replace your heart of stone, if he has opened up your eyes and your ears to hear the goodness of God, right? If he has regenerated you and filled you with his Holy Spirit and placed a seal upon you that seals you in Christ, there is nothing that can prevail against that. Right? Neither height nor depth nor anything in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. Now I know that the words that I've spoken this morning have been confronting because for a great majority of us, free will makes very real sense. And I think it's because we like to believe that we have a real sense of control. We make real choice of real consequences. Absolutely, I believe that. But we want to believe in free will because we want to believe that we have control. And even, just take God out of the picture. You have nowhere near enough control that you think you do anyway. You had no control over where you were born. You had no control over your parents. You had no control over your genes. You had no control over the traffic today. You had no control over the weather today. You had no control over what I was going to speak today. Right? You do not have as much control as you think you do, even like taking God out of the picture. Right? And for some of us, the reason that we want to believe we have control is because it's comforting to know that I can grasp onto something But how much more comforting is it knowing that the one who is in control is good? Right? I may not be in control, but Jesus Christ is. And he reigns in glory. How much more does it make me feel comforted knowing that although my life is chaotic at times, that the one who has crafted the oceans and the seas and indeed all of creation 
has his hand over all things. That's what comforts us. Do not trust in your own ability to control your circumstances. Yes, you make real choices. I, I will fight to the death for that. But trust in the one who is in control. And why do we trust? Because he's good. Right? Check out our other sermons in this series. About, we've talked a lot about God's sovereignty, really. But God is utterly good. And lots of people want to say, well, if he's, he's like this, he's not good. But he is. The scriptures proclaim that he's good. And if you can't see that God is good under this idea, right, maybe it's sometimes our ideas that need to change. Right? If, we're, if we've got a, a box labeled good, we're going to have, but God's going to bust out the box. Right? He says things which are com- uh, challenging and confronting. Right? That might be something to consider. Friends, I'm going to pray for us, and uh, I'm going to invite the worship band up. Um, but please, if you've got questions, please send them through. Uh, this, this sermon doesn't come in a vacuum. I didn't wake up yesterday and go, oh, maybe I should think about election. Maybe I should think about oh, free will and sovereignty. No, this has been a long journey of digesting hard things, of uh, submitting to the scriptures, and I pray that we can do the same. I want you to have as many questions as you have. I want you to send stuff through. Okay? Because I want you to delight in the sovereignty of God and the goodness of him as much as I do. Let me pray for us. Father, I just want to thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that you are the great I am. You are the one who ordains all things, that not even the rolling of dice is outside your grasp. Father, we pray this morning that this would be an idea that encourages us, not burdens us. That we would be able to place our trust in the great I am. That we would know that God is good, utterly good. Father, I pray for doubts or concerns or queries or questions. I pray that you would answer them with your scriptures now or in due time. Father, but I would pray that we would see your designs for our salvation and declare them as good. I pray that we would trust in your sovereignty and your control and that the implications would drive us. I pray that we would have the courage of John Patton. I pray that death would be nothing in the face of our trust in God's plans. We pray this in the name of the almighty Jesus Christ who has purchased us, has ransomed us, has redeemed us, made us sons and daughters of the King. Amen. All right, here's a couple of questions for you. How do we not fall into hyper-Calvinism, which is that view that God is really, really sovereign, so we have no choice, basically, and still uphold and trust in the sovereignty of God. What are the hyper-Calvinists missing? Yeah, I think primarily what they're missing is the means of grace. So God is utterly sovereign, yet he uses means, right? So God elected you, chose you, saves you, but why did you become a Christian? Because someone told you the gospel, right? God used means, and I think that's true for the entirety of the Christian walk. Um, 
whether it's through prayer or through scripture or through singing or through journaling or through meditating or through dwelling, God uses means. And I think that's what they miss. They miss the fact that, God, that throughout the scriptures there's these metaphors of fighting for your faith, running the race, like hard work. What did Paul say in Philippians 2, right? Like work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you. We trust in the sovereignty of God who has given us means to grow our faith. I think that's what they're missing is that they sort of just go, God's got it covered, it'll all work out. And they miss the clear commandments of God to be faithful, obedient disciples of the risen Lord. Cool. All right, question two. How far should we take God's sovereignty? For example, does God know what I'm about to have for lunch? Yes. <laughs> I, think, I think we just take it as far as the scriptures say. Right? It says God ordains all things, he knows all things, he searches all things, right? I think it's pretty clear. God... God knows what you had for breakfast yesterday, today, and forever. <laughs> so I should choose wisely, is that what you're saying? <laughs> Maybe it's already chosen for you. <laughs> All right, next question. What about my kids? Yeah. Um, I think this is the hardest implication and a reason why a lot of people don't want to believe in uh, election, right? The idea that God chose some, that will come to faith through the preaching of the gospel and that he has not chosen others. Um, it's, really, it's really appeasing to believe that um, everyone has an opportunity to trust in Jesus. Um, I, want to say, I want to say a couple of things. One is that we don't know who the elect are, right? Charles Spurgeon, um, he talks about the fact that you know, if, if God's elect, God's chosen people had X's on the back of their shirts or on the back of their necks, he'd go around every house in England and pull down their shirts and that would be his ministry and he would preach the gospel to them and he'd save a great many. But the reality is that we don't know who the elect are and so we preach the gospel to everyone trusting in God rather than ourselves. I think, I think something for me as I've, I've dwelled about it, the, the reality is I don't have kids, right? So there's, there's an element of this question that I can't address. But I think resting, resting in the fact that God is both good and uses means. So um, God is utterly good. Right? I think we can rest in that and trust in that when it comes to our kids. And we have this just abundant stories throughout the scriptures of the prodigal son who was far off and eating with the pigs and would come back, right? So we don't want to go, well, this kid seems close to Jesus. He's obviously elect and this kid seems far off. Let's not preach the gospel to them. No, we want to say, we don't know. Let's preach the gospel as farly and as widely and as passionately as we can, knowing that God is both good and uses means, right? I think that's what I want to say, yeah. Uh, what do you think of Molinism? Yeah. Um, Firstly, question. what is it? <laughs> yeah. So Molinism is, is one of the systems that I left out of my church history through the memes uh, discovery. So uh, Molinism is this idea. It's put forward by uh, Louis de Molina. He's a Catholic priest. Um, sort of a same, around the same times of um, Calvin and Arminius, uh, Jacob Arminius. And sort of the thought was, well, the Catholics really don't like the Protestants after the Reformation. So we can't agree with Calvin or Luther, and we can't agree with Arminius, so we've got to come up with our own idea. And um, so Molinism is... Let me, let me get this. I'm trying to break it down. It's quite complex. It adds... The reason why I don't like it is because it's a philosophical answer to a biblical question. 
And the, the idea is that God knows not only everything that will happen, but everything that could happen. Right? And so because he knows everything that could happen, he could envision all these different worlds. So imagine that there's one world here where no one's saved, and there's one world here where everyone is saved because he can sort of um, stack the deck so that more so certain people respond, right? And <laughs> Molinism is the idea is that God has crafted the world in such a way that he knows what every single person would do in any given circumstance and therefore crafts the world so that the most uh, or that a large amount of people would respond to him. So it's quite, quite complex. Uh, and that's because it's a philosophical answer to a biblical question, and so there's not much biblical text to it. Um, does God know what could happen? Absolutely. But I just don't think it works like that. Cool. cool. Um, if God is sovereign, why should we pray? If God isn't sovereign, why should you pray? Yeah. Like, if God, if God isn't sovereign, if he cannot accomplish what he promises, if he cannot secure what he promises, why pray to him? Pray to the one who can. Right? If there's someone more powerful than God, worship them. But there's not. Right? That's, that's why we should pray. The, the other thing is that I think sometimes in prayer we have this idea that we can change God's mind. Like, God is surprised by our prayers, and he's just not. Like, he knows what you're going to pray. He's not surprised. Like, oh, my goodness, I didn't see that before. Of course. Thank you, Jerry. Um, Right? No, he's not, he's not like that. He knows what Jerry's going to pray for, and he knows that the riches that he needs are in Christ Jesus. And by praying, we actually access them. Um, uh, Calvin had a great quote, which I posted a couple of um, weeks ago when we talked about something in sovereignty. Um, and, and the big idea is that we don't surprise God, we don't change his mind, and so we access every kind of riches and treasure that are laid up for us in Christ Jesus. We access his um, peace, we access his security, we access his sovereignty. That's why we pray, because God is sovereign. Yeah. Cool. Uh, one more question, which is my favourite. How many memes are too many memes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When the memes become too dank. Cool. That's all our questions, I think. Oh, cool. Thank you. Thank you, cool. everyone. Good questions. All right.